Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 229. We'll continue in the book of Nehemiah with a brief summary of chapters 8 through 11 and follow with some thoughts about translation and understanding. Previously on TanakhCast. After an extensive census of the population, he prepares the people for an announcement that he intends to make in the seventh month when, quote, all Israel were in their towns. It is now chapter 8, and the morning of the first of Tishrei, and the people have been summoned to Jerusalem to congregate at the water gate, one of the temple's entrances. Ezra the scribe makes his first crossover appearance in this book, standing atop a wooden platform, Torah scroll in hand. He begins with a blessing and, quote, all the people answered, Amen, Amen, raising their hands, and they bowed and prostrated themselves on the ground to Adonai. Ezra reads through the morning and continues into the afternoon, a play-by-play accompanied with color commentary. The people are so moved and overwhelmed that many are weeping. Nehemiah tells them this is a sacred happy occasion not one for mourning and weeping, quote, Go eat delicacies and drink sweet drinks and send portions to whoever has none prepared. For the day is holy to our master. And do not be sad, for the rejoicing of Adonai is your strength. The Levites get in on it too, quote, Hush, for today is holy. Do not be sad. So the people go off to eat, drink, and be merry, and return for the second day of reading, where they learn about the Sukkot festival. Quote, Adonai had charged through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in booths on the festival in the seventh month, and that they should make it heard and pass about a proclamation in all their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hill country and bring back leafy boughs of olive trees and leafy boughs of evergreen and leafy boughs of myrtles and leafy boughs of palm trees and leafy boughs of thick branch trees to make booths as it is written, which they do. And the observance and celebration fills every rooftop and courtyard and public space in Jerusalem and, quote, all the assembly of those returning from the captivity made booths and dwelled in the booths. For the Israelites had not done this since the days of Joshua, son of Nun, till that day, and there was great rejoicing. Chapter 9 begins on the 24th day of Tishrei, the day following the observance of Sukkot, and gladness gives way to sadness. The people are, quote, gathered in fast and sackcloth with soil on their heads. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all the foreigners, and they confessed their offenses and the crimes of their fathers. And so they spent the day in this manner, a quarter of the day reading the Torah, a quarter of the day confessing sins, and, quote, bowing down to Adonai their God. And then the Levites, on a dais of their own, cried out a loud voice and offered up a prayer, recapping the people's history from Abraham into the present moment, with each pivotal moment finding God doing for the people, but in each instance, quote, They and our fathers acted arrogantly and were stiff-necked and did not heed your commands, and they refused to heed and did not recall your wonders that you did for them. And they were stiff-necked and turned round to go back to their slavery in their rebellion. And each time God forgives. But now, quote, Here are we slaves today, 
and the land you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here are we slaves within it. And its abundant yield belongs to the kings that you put over us for our offenses, and they rule over our carcasses and over our beasts as it pleases them, and we are in great straits. And so chapter 10 begins with a, quote, solemn commitment and write it down, sealed. The officials, the Kohanim, Levites, and leaders sign and quote the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the choristers, the temple laborers, and all those who separated themselves from the people of the lands according to God's teaching, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, whoever had conscious understanding, holding fast with their brothers, their leaders, and entering into the oath and the vow to walk in God's teaching that was given by Moses, servant of God, and to keep and to do all the commands of Adonai, our master, and his laws and his statutes. They commit to not intermarrying, not conducting business on Shabbat, letting the land rest during the Shemitah sabbatical year, and donating a third of a shekel, a wood offering, first fruits, and other required offerings to the temple. Throughout the Sukkot festival, the city of Jerusalem teems with people, but once the festival ends, the city will return to its natural state, sorely underpopulated. So, Nehemiah voluntells the officers, the people, to relocate to the capital and, quote, the rest of the people cast lots in order to bring one out of ten to settle in Jerusalem, the holy city, and the other nine parts in the towns. I learned from my partner the following teaching. Translation is commentary. That is, you have the original text, that is the Torah, and it is in what we call today Biblical Hebrew. And as we are not speaking in Biblical or Modern Hebrew right now, it requires translation into our vernacular, the spoken language of North America, English. But this act of translation is not direct one-to-one rendering of words from one language into another. The translator adds a little something in the process, and different translators will add a different little something depending on the translator. So here's an example. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, quote, And they read from the book, from the book of God's teaching, expounding and giving reasons, and they explained what was read. Robert Alter renders the word miforash as expounding, where the JPS renders it as translating. Now, I don't know if I would have gone with either as looking at the word miforash, I would look at the root, fe, resh, shin, and understanding that that root also appears in the word parshanut and parshan, which is generally rendered as commentary and commentator respectively, I would have translated Neforash as commenting or even interpreting. The fact that we need translating of the Torah into another language means that Jews speak English, French, Judeo-Arabic, Spanish, Ladino, German, Yiddish, Amharic, Afrikaans, Marathi, dozens of other languages as well as Hebrew. But is there a language of the Jewish people, a default setting, a language that Jews must speak And if not, somehow something is wrong with them or they're deficient in some way. Now, most folks might reflexively reply, yes, of course, that that language is Hebrew. 
Hold up. Wait a minute. Well, isn't it? I mean, let's take a minute to look at our history. If we look to the book of Genesis, Abraham is identified as Mesopotamian and most likely spoke Aramaic. Indeed, Sa'ad Gaon in his 10th century commentary on Sefer Hayatzirah states that Aramaic was the language of the fathers. But within two generations, the vernacular shifts. Yaakov and his father-in-law are building a cairn as testament to an oath they swear. Genesis chapter 31 verse 7 reports that Yaakov, who had been born in Canaan, used the Hebrew word gal'ed, while Lavan the Aramean used the Aramaic yagar sahadutha. So at this point, we can say that the matriarchs and patriarchs spoke Hebrew, but they were not the sole Hebrew speakers in the ancient Near East. Fast forward to the closing decades of the First Temple period with the westward expansion of the Babylonian Empire, the conquest of Judea by the Babylonians, the destruction of the Temple, and the exile. Though that period of exile was short, less than 50 years, it ushered a period of extensive everyday use of Aramaic among Jews. As we read in this episode's portion, the Torah text had to be translated, interpreted, expounded by Mevinim so that it would be understood by the people. And within 260 years, these Aramaic-speaking Jews would be conquered by the Greek-speaking Hellenes, and then 260 years later by the Latin-speaking Romans. 200 years later, after two catastrophic attempts at revolt, the Jews resigned themselves to foreign domination and to use quote-unquote foreign languages. For example, the Egyptian Jewish community, which dated from the 7th century BCE, switched away from Hebrew quickly. In 410 BCE, they dispatched letters in Aramaic to the high priest in Jerusalem, appealing for help in dealing with the locals. Eighty years later, similar letters are dispatched in Greek. When Hebrew ceased being a spoken language, it became a sacred language, a language with unique metaphysical status. However, over the centuries, for an overwhelming number of the educated read men, Jewish education meant a basic Hebrew literacy, which facilitated understanding simple texts, such as passages from the Tanakh, Rashi's 11th century commentary, or selections from Rabbi Yosef Karo's 16th century guide to Jewish observance, the Shulchan Aruch. Any texts requiring greater Hebrew literacy were often translated into other languages, but in order to ensure a wider understanding of Torah, Jews translated the Torah into various vernacular languages. This practice was widely regarded as a necessary evil if not an outright evil, as according to the Babylonian Talmud tractate Sefer Torah, the day the Greek translation was completed was, quote, as ominous for Israel as the day the golden calf was made. As conflicted as the feelings were about this practice, it was a common one for almost 2,000 years. Aside from functions related to the sacred and basic literacy, Hebrew also served as a pan-Jewish language. Works considered important were translated into Hebrew to reach a wider audience. Yehuda ibn Tibon's great contribution to Jewish scholarship was his Hebrew translations of Bachya ibn Pakuda's work, Chovot HaLevavot, Duties of the Heart, Judah Halevi's Kuzari, and Sa'adya Gaon's Emunot V'deot, Beliefs and Opinions. Much of Maimonides' works 
originally written in Judeo-Arabic, were translated into Hebrew for broader readership and sparked new waves of controversy with each new community it would penetrate in the new language. The most important book of Kabbalah, the Zohar, was written in Aramaic, even though in the period in which it was produced, 13th century Spain, Hebrew was the normal language for religious writing. Enlightened Germans, the Maskilim, adopted the same strategy in the early 19th century, as well as the Bratslav Hasidim, who translated Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav's Sipure Maasiot, Tales of Ancient Days, from the Yiddish original. Though Hebrew was confined to these three non-vernacular functions for almost two and a half thousand years, it continued to develop. The Hebrew spoken after the Babylonian exile, otherwise known as Rabbinic Hebrew, supplanted Biblical Hebrew as the literary language and was, in turn, supplanted by what is known as Medieval Hebrew, which was employed for diverse uses, such as the penning of liturgical poems or later the authoring of scientific texts. The acceptance of Hebrew as the main public language of the Jewish people would thus have to emerge as a conscious, deliberate act and not without fierce opposition. This is a story for another time. But I want to conclude with another point, one that perhaps today is wrapped up in the move to institute Hebrew as the Jewish language with no translation. The public reading of the Torah happened in plenum, that is, Everyone was there, men, women, and children, all together. Chapter 8, verse 2 tells us this explicitly, and then verse 3 tells us again. There is no mention of segregating folks by gender with a mechitza barrier between them. No disruptive shouts of gewalt from some of the men as the Torah was read aloud to the people, and no threats of a new election to a shaky government coalition. How this connects to is a story for another time. But to paraphrase Nehemia, Hamivin Yavin, those that understand will understand. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Tell a friend about Tanakhcast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to Tanakhcast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 230 when we conclude the book of Nehemiah with chapters 12 and 13.